I think we'll get started. Um, so this is Controversial Objects, and my name is Erica Ward, and I'm a research and academic support specialist for Mayo Clinic, um, and also have worked as an archivist in other positions. Um, we have Katie Pritchard, or Katherine Pritchard. She is the assistant registrar at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and Casey Mathern, who's the curator of objects and um, exhibits at the Goodhue County Historical Society in Minnesota. So as everybody has probably encountered in their careers so far, you end up with controversial objects. And that can be items that are difficult to catalog and identify. Um, it could be items that maybe are attached to some deep um, issues such as racism or discrimination or maybe it's a culturally sensitive item such as Native American. So there's various reasons why an item can be considered controversial. And so Casey and Kat, Katie will be giving examples of items that they've encountered throughout their career so far. Um, and we also wanted to make this a discussion portion also. So if you have items that you've encountered and you want to share them as examples, please do. Um, or you have questions, um, we'll definitely have time periods where we can definitely get that done. All right? Hi. Um, so I'm Katie Pritchett. I'm the one on the bottom. Um, before I start, I just want to go over kind of the format for... Um, the, for our session, um, as Casey and I were working on it, we kept coming up with more and more objects that were difficult to work with. Anyone who's worked with objects realizes that there are really a lot of objects that are difficult to work with. And um, I may have gotten a little carried away in presenting the number of objects <laughs> that were difficult to deal with. So what we're going to do is um, Casey and I are each going to come up and talk about a couple of objects that have kind of a core difficulty. Um, and then we'll talk about um, what the object was, uh, why it was hard to deal with, and um, one, you know, solutions that we found. And then we're going to open it up to you for questions about those particular objects or objects that you found that you've worked with that have been similar. Um, you know, we're really here to learn from each other. And uh, if, if um, you know, if, if we can be a part of a process of, you know, a cooperative learning, that's pretty cool. That's, that's important in museums. Um, also, they are recording this session, which is very exciting. Um, but it does mean that if, if you have things to add, um, you know, please speak up. Uh, if we're afraid that it might not be loud enough, we will repeat it back to you so that it is still caught here and your words are memorialized for potentially generations to come and archivists get to take this digital recording and figure out what to do as formats change. Um, so I'm just going to go on and uh, start off with um, two of my personal favorite objects. Um, one of the core reasons we found that objects can be difficult to engage with, that they can cause controversy or conflict, is that you have different um, audience-dependent interpretations. 
you know, every, every interaction with an object is going to be different depending on who is interacting with it. And sometimes those interactions, those interpretations are going to be vastly different. So um, two that I got to work with as a young, naive, idealistic grad student um, was an opium pipe used during the Victorian era and a repurposed window hanging that was taken from the Summer Palace in China during the Opium Wars um, by British forces. Um, so these, the, the, the problem with these is that we had very different groups of stakeholders. We had, um, this was in, I was working with a program in Northern England, and we had Northern English high school students and members of the Chinese diaspora community. We had um, Chinese um, individuals who had immigrated to Newcastle from Hong Kong in the 70s. We had Chinese academics who were still working in China. We had um, Chinese students who were attending university in the UK. And we had Chinese professionals who, had, um, who were there on you know, short term. And so they had very different reactions to these objects. Um, the opium pipe, for instance, the, our, uh, our, our high school students looked at them kind of like old-timey crack pipes. You know, pretty cool, like drugs, it's awesome. Um, they're not awesome, drugs are not <laughs> okay. But um, the, the Chinese uh, individuals, they had a very different take on these objects. Um, the, the opium pipe was a representation of a very pivotal and negative period in their history. It was a representation of European domination in, 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 in China and um, it, it was a very emotionally charged object. Um, we, couldn't, we, we couldn't just say, you know, old-timey crack pipe and, um, you know, emotionally charged colonial oppression. Like, that's, it's a harder thing to, um, to kind of combine. Uh, the, let's see, did I go to the next one? Yes, so this is the, the cushion cover. It was a, um, a cushion cover that was taken from the Summer Palace in China. Um, by a Victorian soldier to brought to a Victorian house and made into a Victorian dog bed. Um, definitely not its intended purpose, definitely pseudo-sacrilegious depending on, you know, which, which standpoint you're coming from. And uh, the students thought it was cool, it's repurposing. Members of the Chinese diaspora community, not so much. They were really not happy, especially since um, the cushion cover still had dog hairs on it. So um, again, a very tricky subject. So what we did was um, our approach was to actually limit the museum's interpretation of the object. We wanted to put that interpretation into the hands of the individual, um, whether that was a member of a Chinese diaspora community or a student who was visiting or you know, a, a local pub owner who walked in off the street and had never heard of the Opium Wars. Um, to be fair, I actually had never heard of the Opium Wars either, so no judgment there. Um, so some of the things we did were we had short text. We asked leading questions really to, to let the sort of the context of the exhibition as a whole, you know, let that inform their, their individual interpretation. Uh, we exchanged emotion, heavy words like stolen and looted that, you know, are, are casting judgment in one way or the other. And we added in removed and taken. We also, one of the things we really liked doing was actually using archives. We didn't do as much interpretation because we had 19th century soldiers and Chinese officials who had written up their own responses. So we took ourselves out of the, um, out of the mix. And I think these are the two labels that we used. 
This is why you keep labels on your computer for five years so that when you do a presentation, you can go back and prove that you, this is what you did. Um, and if you look at the first one, you can see that it's, it's pretty impersonal. It just says this is what it was used for um, and almost a, a description rather than um, you know, a lot of context and, and judgment on the part of the, the museum. And the second one, um, when we talk about the cushion cover on the bottom, uh, we, we talked about uh, where it was and where it went to. But our goal with that one was to really lead the visitor into a question. You know, how do they, how are they going to, um, how are they going to interpret it? And really taking us out of the instruction phase into just the guidance and leading and maybe pushing them into the self-interpretation. So that is, um, that is uh, my, that was my object. Um, Casey, do you have the next one? Oh, right, so um, I confused my slides. Um, so, do, I mean, I guess this is an opportunity if any of you have dealt with objects. Um, I mean, there are worlds of opportunities for there to be, um, you know, one object that is interpreted very, very differently, I guess. And does, does anyone have any questions or, I guess, uh, objects that are really audience dependent for their interpretation that you've dealt with before? Anything? No. Yes. Okay, so we have um, a topic of human remains, and this is just for the recording. I'm totally listening. So just to recap, um, that was uh, you had a child remains in your in your museum, and the question was, how do you display that while still showing respect? And that's I mean that's a really interesting issue that a lot of us have dealt with. I mean, human remains often in American museums, it's you know we're dealing with potentially NAGPRA, um, which is the Native American Grave Protection and Repatriation Act. In case you haven't worked with it before, but I mean that's a question that museums all over face, even without the um, you know, even without the uh, the whole NAGPRA involvement as well. Um, did you? What was the? Um, what did you end up doing with it? The uh, doing with the remains.
Okay. So, so um, just to recap, that was a uh, the the you did display the the human remains of the child, but you did it with the context itself. It wasn't um, as an oddity or anything else, and you used that as uh, I guess you worked with the remains to um, with the context as well, understanding who the child was, what role they played as an introduction or as a transition to other topics within the museum. And you also gave visitors the opportunity to avoid seeing it if, you know, if, if they may have been offended by it. Very cool. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. I can give an example of one that went really wrong. Oh, oh we, have, we, have an, we have an object that went wrong. Okay, bring it on. So, uh, so um, you had an art museum with um, Maori human remains mm -hmm. as artistic pieces. Um, So you had um, uh, members of the Maori culture who came, they were offended and lodged an official complaint with the director of the museum and then um, as you said it was a, um, what, what was, how, they had a traditional Maori song to, um, to honor their ancestors as, as um, you know, in, in the, that environment. Well, that's not fun. Um, and that's actually, um, that, that step of involving the originating culture is incredibly important. When we were working with our, um, especially the cushion cover, we involved um, members of the Chinese diaspora community um, as well as uh, current Chinese academics because we really, really wanted to make sure that we were being as sensitive as possible um, and we were getting as many different viewpoints as possible. Um, it ended up with a lot of words and a lot of um, a lot of content, but it um, it worked pretty well. So, I'm going to turn it over to Casey. Good morning. As Erica introduced me, I'm Casey Mather, and I'm a curator um, at the Goodhue County Historical Society, which is actually in Red Wing, Minnesota. And most of you are probably familiar with Red Wing pottery or Red Wing shoes. Those are both Red Wing, Minnesota. So. Um, something I came across was a set of inner collection of Red Wing pottery that came uh, mostly from one singular donation in 1993. We got thousands of pieces. Um, 
and we now have a display of Red Wing pottery in our museum. And one of the pieces I found in storage was actually um, a smoking set. So this was a set composed of um, a case for a jar for cigarettes, ashtrays, and that was a type of pottery, uh, pottery set that was uh, common at the time when smoking was more in vogue. And the handles feature uh, these stereotyped sort of quasi-Dogon or Sinufo um, West African figures as the handles. Um, the problem with this is that nearly all of the designer's other pieces are on display, except for this set. And um, that's a problem because it is, in a way, editing the entire body of work of Charles Murphy, and in a way, cleansing Charles Murphy of any kind of racist work that he produced, and he produced some pretty offensive things. So this is a catalog from 1947, advertising the pieces, um, and I have a better image. It's a little clearer to see. Um, so this is the complete set. There's a dish, there's a covered jar, and then the shorter jar with the cover would have been used for cigarettes. And on the bottom you see the two ashtrays, which are designed ergonomically to fit in your hand. So this is something that would probably be put out during entertaining um, you know, home events and uh, given to guests. And you can see the figure on the top, the small isolated image is one of these figures. Um, and just below that, I displayed, um, these are actually um, Dugon um, copper alloy, um, metal alloy uh, pieces actually in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, so these were produced in Mali. So these are West African um, cultural objects that Charles Murphy was modeling his handles off of um, and doing it in a cartoonish um, way. Um, but Charles Murphy wasn't alone. There were lots of um, potteries that in the mid-century produced uh, really what we would think of now as offensive images and depictions of um, non-white people. And one of the potteries to do that was Hager pottery. So on the left is um, something made by the potter Royal Hickman. That's his name. <laughs> And uh, the piece was just titled Native Heads without any kind of, um, without denoting you know, what tribe they would have come, come from. They're just these figures with neck rings and large earrings and uh, cartoonish features. And next to it is uh, to show you another example of a kind of smoking set um, that was sold at that time, also made by, by Hager Pottery. Um, and we're talking about art pottery in the mid-20th century, so Hager and Red Wing were comparable to one another. So the solution, I felt, um, was to think about if adding these pieces instead of putting them towards the back of the shelf in the dark in storage could actually open up a dialogue about racist memorabilia and racist images from the mid-century. 
um, and expand visitors' understanding of the, the milieu that Charles Murphy was working in. And um, uh, so I, we decided to do that. And of course, the contextual information was the most important part. So displaying these with context and allowing visitors to see the nuances. Um, and one resource that I found helpful was uh, the Jim Crow Museum of Racist Memorabilia, uh, which is a museum. And they have resources online talking about the different racist um, archetypes of uh, 19th and 20th century. And um, what we came away with was the piece on display next to, or three of the pieces on display next to other pieces that uh, Charles Murphy created in, um, and that Red Wing created at the same time. And that included objects like the Magnolia pottery, uh, which is a really po uh, popular line produced in the 40s um, alongside the, um, the smoking set. Um, just to give people a sense that these objects were sold in the same catalog in the same year, um, just to bring home the prevalence of racist images. Why? Okay. So Katie has another um, example on this core theme, and then we'll open it up to everyone. Um. I just want to preface this object by saying that not all, I think I, think I mentioned, um, not all difficulty with the object is just on the interpretation level. Like, how do we tell people about it? Sometimes the, the conflict that we find is behind the scenes. How do we catalog it? Um, and so this object was a behind the scenes object that we had a little bit of an issue with. Um, I, I found it as I was kind of wandering through Past Perfect one day, and um, it was a, a, a blackface doll that was um, categorized as a bear um, in the toys. Um, to be fair, when it was made, it was a toy, but it's, it's not a bear. Um, and so, you know, I, I talked with other museum staff and, and volunteers, and we, we agreed that, yeah, it's not a bear. Um, so, the, the, this was just one out of a, new, a number of incidences in which uh, museum staff had, uh, or volunteers, museum personnel, we'll say, had um, wanted to clean up the records by removing um, offensive references in, in, in the catalog record itself, um, whether that was tweaking the provenance or tweaking the very description of it. Um, and this was happening both in records and also archival transcripts. There was the question of, well, you know, this one person who's pretty prominent is using a word that we're not allowed to use, so what do I do with it? Um, that was, that, that, that's not a completely uncommon conversation to have. Um, so this was another piece that was categorized as a costume with one of the most... Um, I mean, kind of one of the standout identifying features was um, was completely left off of the catalog record. And I, I think you can kind of probably see which identifying feature that was that was completely left off the, the, the catalog record. It was a Fourth of July costume. Um, so, so we fixed that catalog record. Um, both of the, actually, there were 
there were a lot of catalog records that I had to fix. Um, but the solution was actually not object-centered. It was people-centered. And a lot of these solutions with controversial objects are not object-centered. While the problem is object-centered, the solution is people. The solution is relational. And so in this situation, we, we use it as an opportunity to, like I said, own the past as a learning experience. Um, you know, our, our responsibility of a museum is not to revise history. It's to preserve history. Um, we, we had some really great conversations with our volunteers about the difference between understanding the past and condoning it. I mean, we can't ignore things that were done, things that were said. We can't ignore the fact that we have come, you know, we have come a ways. Like, as, as a society, as a culture, we've grown, and I think for the most part, we've improved. And ignoring negative aspects of our past is, um, is detrimental. It's, it's not a helpful thing to do. Um, and in, in this particular situation, it was actually really nice because um, not, the, so, you know, not the whole problem itself was nice, but it actually gave us a really great opportunity to talk with members of the volunteer kind of core that we had. And I mean, I learned a lot more about kind of the role of blackface in that town, you know. They had, um, you know, a different community events that, you know, a 70-year-old volunteer could remember going to where that was, you know, the primary entertainment. And one of the things she said was, we've come so far. You know, we've, we understand that that's not, that's not what we can do. And she goes, I just feel proud that even as I get older, I can learn. You know, so it's an opportunity to um, educate the staff. It's an opportunity to educate um, yourselves. You get to learn a little bit more, which is always a good thing. Um, but yeah, it was definitely not, um, you know, not a, not a fun, you know, not a, not a fun conversation to have. But um, it was one that solved a problem. Um, again, it was people-centered. The problem was around the object. The problem wasn't the object itself. So, I mean, I guess now would be an opportunity for questions about for us as far as how we've dealt with offensive objects, or, you know, how how many of you have dealt with offensive objects you know, that are racially tinged, politically tinged, that happens. Yes, ma'am. So we have an early 20th century poster given by a prominent donor? Right. Okay. Sure. 
So, so to reiterate, because I don't think that the mic picked that up, you had a donor give a, um, a, a poster that was early 20th century um, that was advertising for a band. Um, her father's band. Her father's band. Um, you said they were African-American? Um, and the donor had covered up... Um, had covered up text on the poster. The, the original donation was a, a Xerox of a poster. She'd covered up text, which um, you later found out said uh, white seated in front. And um, you, you, you're conflicted about showing it because you don't want people to feel bad about the white people in front text. So does, anyone, does anyone have a response? Should I put it out? I don't, I don't know. I really want to display it. Well, I will say, from a, a registration point of view, it's, it's also a little problematic to have a Xerox copy of, of something um, in your collection. But, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. Do you have, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear from anyone up here, because, yes, yes, miss. So I do just want to recap, um, and, and I might be at some points interrupting people so that I can recap so we don't have like eight minutes of silence on here. But um, the response was that you do think, um, from, from, from you, Miss, was that you do think that it should be displayed. And the question isn't whether it gets displayed, but how it gets displayed. And using, you know, being, being sensitive, yet at the same time being upfront and addressing it. Okay, I saw your hand first. So the response is to um, potentially display them both, to, to say, you know, not only to, to present the original object, but present the, you know, the... the Did you? Um, so you did. You got. Um, did you get ownership of the? So you own the other one. Okay. Yeah. So as as a curator, you feel that you shouldn't have access to it, in part not just because of the content, but because of the fact that you don't believe the woman who owned it would want you to have it. Okay. 
Um, I saw two hands back there. Did you ladies still have anything you wanted to add? We have time for one more, Eumas. No, no. Um, 
I, I would really like to just kind of pitch in my thought, and then I think if we move on to the next object, we've got a lot of really great thoughts and a really great input that's going to be thrown around. Um, but I think I'd like to kind of keep moving on if we can, just because I have slides that I worked really hard on. Um, go to your CMP, your collection management policy. Go to your mission. Be able to have that document that backs up why you take objects in. If you have someone that's offended, you can say, all right, this is why we took it in. Um, if you think through your decision before you make it and you're willing to defend your decision, go for it. Um, if, if you feel like you're making a decision you can't defend, don't do it. I mean, that's, that's kind of my, my general. I like my CMP. It's my Bible. Um, you know, it's... Yeah, you be proud of that. You be proud of that. Um, okay, so I'm going to move on to the next one. And as a collection manager, registrar, behind the scenes, don't really deal too much with real people. This is um, this is the sort of thing that I come across all the time. And you look at something and you think, oh, it's a christening gown. Why is it controversial? Well, it wasn't the gown itself. Um, but the problem was that, um, you know, when you have an object that might require a lot of work, you sometimes have people that are pushing you to move away from it. You have 18 things to do with your next five minutes. Do you really want to spend more time on this object? Um, so we had this beautiful christening gown, and it included slippers and a bonnet, and it was, it was phenomenal. Um, handmade, hand-stitched. Uh, Casey worked with it and absolutely adored every second of it. Um, I heard, oh my gosh, this thing is gorgeous so many times. I'm sorry. Um, but the problem was that uh, ownership had passed from generation to generation. And when a parent gives something to their kid, they don't ask for a deed of gift, which is very inconsiderate. I think they should. But... Um, <laughs> And it, it can be harder than as things go from generation to generation to track that ownership, especially when in the case of this object, it was worn by siblings and then nieces and nephews and then grandkids. And so, you know, there was the question of, well, who actually owns the object? Um, and, and if it's going to be contested, um, do we really want to deal with that? Um, that, you know... It's a whole lot easier to just turn down a donation that you can't trust. Um, so the solution is is simple but time consuming, and it's due diligence. You know, and and the willingness to say no. You know, try and track that object's ownership, and this is going to come through. Um, you know, all sorts of different types of objects. It's going to, you know, come through things that are really easy to track, whether it's something like copyright or something that is really hard to track, like something like this that goes from generation to generation. And it's really hard. Um, what we ended up doing for this particular uh, dress, do I have? Nope. Uh, that's my only picture. Um, was uh, we actually got agreements from um, as many people in, as possible in that family that this one man was the owner. We had all of his siblings saying that, yes, he's the owner. Not only that, but they also approved of it coming to the museum. So we, there, there was some amount of trust on our part that they were going to be fine with it. Uh, we had our deed. We had a deed of gift, and sometimes that's the best that you can do. Um, and we had, through that process, though, we formed a really good relationship with the donor. Um, little... We've got, she got really attached to the museum, and we've gotten another beautiful christening gown from her since. Um, but it was definitely very time-consuming. Um, and there were some points where I just thought, is this really necessary? 
Do I have to send out another email? Do I have to get another name? Um, and then when some third cousin twice removed asked if it was okay for a family heirloom to be going to a museum, I just wanted to throw my hands in the air and say, nope, no, it's not. You need to take this and keep it forever. I don't want it. Um, but in the end, we, we have this beautiful christening gown that's in the collection. Uh, the family has been in the county for generations, so it's got phenomenal local history. We have the christening gown from the other side of the family, too, so you have these two beautiful connected pieces that are very connected to the local history, and we're very ha happy we had them. Um, but it was time-consuming. Um, and throughout this whole process, the biggest thing was education with the donor, helping her see that, no, it wasn't because we didn't trust her. It wasn't because, um, you know, we thought that her family was going to be contentious. It was just because we needed to cross our T's, dot our I's, um, and she knew, you know, the uncertainty of the future, and, and that's what we were kind of um, fighting against. But, yeah, I think that was... Um, my only object regarding provenance and title. Has anyone, I mean, does anyone have a standout object that they've had to research or turn down? Because those are usually a little bit heartbreaking. No? Yes. Very cool. So you've you've taken it. I mean, you you didn't take it. Someone else did. How how inconsiderate. Um, but but you've essentially you've taken it and you've you've interpreted the you know the uncertain history as part of its history. Which is um, I'm from a town where like we had Jesse James come through at once. So every single barn had Jesse James sleep there at one point. We have like five boards that have J. James was here in 1876 um, because he slept at six places the one night he rode through. So it's, I mean, it's common and you're going to have it at a bunch of different museums. But interpreting the shady history or uncertain history as part of the history is, you know, totally worthwhile. So I think, um, Casey, you have the next one. Yes. I feel like every county historical society probably has an Abraham Lincoln desk or chair <laughs> somewhere. Um, so culturally sensitive objects will be the next core theme we're going to explore. Um, in Minnesota, we are fortunate enough to have 11 federally recognized tribes. Um, and as a result, a lot of county historical societies have objects that were brought there sometimes spuriously, sometimes by amateur archaeologists who actually robbed graves. And um, also objects that were donated from tribes. So there's a mix of both, and um, it's important to know, to know the difference. Um, the item that I will talk about actually came from the tribe and 
in Red Wing, we have the uh, we have a Dakota tribe, the Medeawakaton Dakota, and um, they are at Prairie Island, which is the name of their reservation. So this is uh, quartzite, also known as pipestone. Um, it's a sacred stone that comes from one place in southern Minnesota, um, and it was actually a trade good throughout the um, recent historical period to many other tribes around the country, including the Southwest. And it portrays a Dakota mythology of Iktomi, who is this sort of um, uh, capricious character and a snake. And the snake is trying to get him. I will actually move on to a picture. Um, and the problem is that objects affiliated with Native American tribes can require alternate methods of display and of storage. Um, as relationships between historical societies and tribes heal, um, a lot of tribes have actually come and blessed certain objects. Um, I think as Molly pointed out, Maori tribes, of course, are, are taking, uh, assuming agency again with with objects in museums that shouldn't be there. Um, and so a couple things to keep in mind with culturally sensitive items is always to consult tribal members if there is a tribe in the area. Um, and even if it's not in uh, your county per se, um, always contacting the uh, your state Indian Affairs Council or the US Bureau, the US Bureau of Indian Affairs um, to have them put you in contact with a tribe that would be associated with that particular object. Um, and realizing that objects uh, from Native uh, peoples will also fall under the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act of 1990, which was a federal law, if you're not aware of it. <coughs> and it mandates that burial grounds be um, protected and that uh, grave goods and objects of cultural patrimony be returned to tribes. Um, and so another thing that, that comes out of this legislation and um, in the last several decades is, is this involvement of tribes with museums to make sure that objects are handled correctly and that restrictions are um, respected. And so a few things that um, that are pretty generally accepted when dealing with these types of pipes is that the stems and the bowls are only connected during ceremonies. So when they are being displayed or stored, the pipe, uh, stem, and bowl should never be connected. They must remain separate. Um, typically in museums, we shy away from having any organic material, any plant material in the collections or in display cases. And uh, this is actually one of those exceptions. So with this pipe in its case, there is a uh, tobacco offering that the Dakota tribe left in the case. Um, smudging ceremonies in collection areas happen in major museums. Um, the Minnesota Historical Society participates in this. Um, the 
uh, American Museum of Natural History. So this is something that's, that's gained prominence and it's a practice that can help heal uh, broken relationships and broken promises. And um, the next item is related, so I'll just move on to that. Um, in addition to grave goods that come up in collections, there are burial mounds that remain in the, um, in the landscape, in the cultural landscape of Red Wing and many other places in Minnesota. Um, so there is actually, on the city-owned museum site where our historical society is, there is a burial mound um, that has been left undisturbed. Many of the stone cairns and burial mounds in Red Wing were actually plowed under by farmers, were robbed by amateur archaeologists in the 19th century. Um, it's an incredibly painful period of history, and um, so this is one intact burial mound. The problem is that the mound is unmarked. There are no site interpretive panels that would allow the visitors um, to understand what is there. And as a result, it's the highest point um, on our museum site. And we're actually up on a bluff above the river. So there's a spectacular view. And anybody who comes to this park area inevitably will stand on the mound because it's the highest point and take pictures um, or move a picnic table on top of it. Um, and so this is actually a photograph of um, a woman who is standing on the mound. It's, it's hard to tell that it's an elevated piece of ground, but it is um, actually with a metal detector. Um, so I'm, I'm unsure if she knew the mound was there and she was looking for grave goods or she was just searching the entire ground and um, I, I was actually there the day that this happened and I did contact the authorities and they sent out a police officer um, who asked uh, the individuals to leave the premises and they did and they didn't actually disturb the ground um, but this is one of the this is the worst case scenario and one of the terrifying things that can happen when the public does not know or is not officially notified in any kind of a way with signage that would help them understand that this is, this is a felony. Um, and one way that uh, we can sort of deal with these, these burial mounds that remain in our cultural landscape um, is actually to mark them. So at the African-American uh, Burial Ground National Monument in New York City. It's actually um, in Lower Manhattan. They were uh, installing a federal building and they discovered human remains. And they halted construction. Um, and there was a total of about six acres of land that had been used as a burial ground for enslaved and free African-Americans going back to um, 17th century Dutch colonial New York. Um, so they retained a portion of the burial ground, reinterred the remains, and they uh, put up signage. And this signage um, tells you that you should stay off the grass, you should refrain from biking or having skateboards, no pets, no littering, no smoking, 
Um, and it also reminds people that um, any kind of loitering is, is disrespectful. Um, and in Minnesota, we're actually lucky that we have, we have a um, Cemetery Protection Act that actually um, is, is a saving grace because that includes burial mounds as well as cemeteries, that it is a, a felony to, to disrupt them. So that's one way it's been handled. Um, always contact local tribal councils, and it looks like the title got a little unformatted, but that's okay. Um, again, contact the U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs or state Indian Affairs councils. Always comply with, with NAGPRA. Um, and look to precedents set by other cultural institutions like um, what the National Park Service did at the African burial ground. Um, and understand that community members may feel that interpretive signage invites vandalism or grave robbing. So this is the caveat to putting up signage, is that it actually draws attention. Um, and this is, I hate saying that we have a solution because we don't currently have a solution for the site. It is owned by the city. There has been talk of signage, but there is no real agreement. Um, so this is an ongoing issue, and um, I'll open the floor up if anyone has encountered a similar issue, even with human remains in the collection that are Native or Native American objects. Yes? So just to recap for the record, this was a, a national park site in Idaho, and uh, it was not marked, and it was rural, but there were local ambassadors and community members that stepped up to help you um, steward the site from a distance. Very important. Very good. Yes? Box and put it up on top of the shelf. So I'm pulling down this box. 
dead eagle permit, which makes it sound really kind of weird that we've got like, a stuffed eagle, but we don't. Um, and we actually, um, as a museum, my collections committee and I looked at these objects and said, we are never going to put these on display. They have nothing to do with Hopkins County. This is a tribe from Wisconsin. They belong with this tribe. And so we contacted them and just returned them. Fantastic. And it was so amazing. It was a great experience. We drove them up there. And the tribe, I think, had, they were just shocked. They were like, why would you do this? Why would you return it to us? But we're like, these are yours. These aren't our, and they could actually trace um, the family that it came from. And it was just a phenomenal experience. So we've had really, really good experiences working with tribes. Um, and we definitely encourage other museums to do things like that. It sounds really scary, but it was great. And this wasn't Yes, yes. So wonderful, a, a wonderful instance of repatriating two um, eagle, he, eagle feather headdresses that were undocumented and taken in um, as stolen objects. Very good work. Yes. Uh, most of our Native American collection is contemporary, and much of it donated directly by the artists. Okay. Um, but we just transferred, we upgraded our past perfect, and that caused you some nomenclature problems. <laughs> And I, I felt very fortunate. I was uncomfortable with the way somebody, it's more like the, the doll example that you showed, I think. But I was able to contact the artist directly and say, how would you describe this? What purpose would you attach to it? And a couple of the objects changed categories because of that. He's more than comfortable with us having them. He likes how we display them. But I thought it was important. I'm not an expert in this area to get the right vocabulary. And so I think making sure that when those things come in, even the things that are coming in legitimately, make sure that the people donating them are giving you the vocabulary that you need. Wonderful. A wonderful point to reinforce um, really connecting with makers of contemporary Native crafts to get the whole story. Um, it's a wonderful example. And we should move on to the next category. My turn again. Okay. Um, the next one. Um, I've worked with uh, a number of military collections, and if you are a local history museum, you have these in your collection, and you don't know what to do with them. Welcome to my life. Um, I'm one of those historians where they can't remember names and dates. So you can imagine that when I have to deal with a military collection, I adore military collections. I, 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 I mean, I would be happy working with nothing but military objects from here on out. Um, but I can't remember insignia. I can't remember badges. Um, I, it's actually really easy, theoretically, to remember which way the, the sergeant's striped point. Um, apparently not for me. So, so often, um, especially with military collections, but you'll find it with other types of collections, you, you have, um, you have the story to the objects, but when you're presenting them, you get lost in the detail, but the detail is essential. Um, I don't know, you know if you've ever put a military collection on display and put a badge upside down or something, um, and then there will be someone who will come and they will tell you that that badge is upside down, that that insignia is actually British and that's an Australian uniform and German trousers. Um, not that I've done that. Um, 
<laughs> but uh, it's, you know, we, we really, really want to work to show that we know what we're doing. So the number of times, you know, I've walked into a display and I've seen a, I've seen a military, you know, a, a full uniform with three pages of text, you know, like a full printer page full of text telling you what each insignia means. And then as that detail goes on and on, it, you, you lose the story. And this is, not, this is not restricted to military collections. This is any type of collection that has a lot of detail. Um, and, and so you, you, you have that story get lost. And that is, that is devastating because, um, you know, I have a soft spot for military collections. And you know that they, that for, from my experience, they have some of the richest stories you'll find. Um, for military museums. Um, but one of the things that I found was that um, you, can, you can have that accurate representation through presentation. You don't have to give all of the detail to say, you know, what this badge means, what this insignia means, the fact that, well, this uniform was actually unique because it was stitched with yellow thread instead of gold thread in World War II and the south coast of, you know, England instead of the north coast. It, like, it gets, there's, there's a lot of detail. Um, but as long as you present it accurately, you know, you're going to find that people who understand what you're doing are going to appreciate it. Um, you know, sometimes your biggest concern is, well, if I represent this this um, this uniform incorrectly or this weapon incorrectly, um, that's, I am hearing music. Um, but uh, y your biggest fear is who's going to complain. Like, I think for a lot of people, when they make an exhibition, their biggest fear is who's going to complain. Um, and when you're working with a very detailed collection, those complaints are usually because you have a slight detail wrong. So you can still get that detail in there without necessarily all of the text and without losing that story. It does require a lot of extra work. You still have to do your research. You just don't get to really prove that you did all of your research. Um, and and uh, it, it's, it's, it's valuable. Um, the reason it's kind of in this presentation and the reason it's controversial is because sometimes it's easier to just not deal with it. Sometimes it's easier to, to look at, you know, to look at the uniform or to look at, um, you know, a, a box full of insignia and just, just put it away. Just, you know, you don't have the time for it. Um, there's music next. I'm sorry. It's very distracting. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you have the ability to, to do your research, to show what you know without necessarily telling what you know. And um, you know, then you're freed up to tell the story, to really get the meat of that exhibition out there. We're done? Perfect. I'll move to the next one. But it's also because of music. And this actually Yeah, I don't know if anyone else can hear that. I think Oh good. Um, this this kind of leads right into the next one. What do you do when you have a collection that requires extensive knowledge? Um, I worked, with a, I worked with an aviation museum. Um, it is, there's a lot of stuff that I don't understand. Um, this is actually not one of our donations. But that's just because when we had a box of gears come in, I forgot to take a picture. Um, and, and so you have these donations that you think might be valuable, but you don't know. And you don't have the time to really 
create that knowledge. You don't have the time to understand. You don't have the time to go to school and learn how to fly planes and learn how to make planes. Um, and I, you know, again, the reason why it's in this presentation is because it's, I mean, how many times have you been told you don't have time to do this by a director or a board of directors and you say, no, it's important, I have to. Um, and, and one way of kind of alleviating that, that problem is um, going to someone else, letting someone else do that work for you, um, you know, by enlisting expert knowledge. Um, in, in, in the situation with the Aviation Museum, I got really, really friendly with a lot of airplane mechanics. They're really nice people, I found out. Um, and, and they were able, they were willing to come into the museum and go over this box of gears. Apparently they were automotive parts, not airplane parts, so <laughs> didn't have to accession those. It was pretty cool. Um, you know, and, and, and this is true for any, any, any period where you, know, you have a collection of you know, neoclassical art. Is that a neoclassical? Is that a, I think that's a thing. If you have a large collection of neoclassical art that comes in and you don't know what it is, clearly I would not know what it is. Um, I find someone who does. You know, it, it's, bringing in that expert knowledge is so great. It, it gets your art collection identified. Um, it increases your museum labor pool. Who doesn't like more trained specialist knowledge? That's a really good thing. Um, and then it also, it, it gets your name out there a little bit more. If you can, you know, with this aviation museum, I went out there and I went to mechanics. And that is not a group that the museum had done any outreach to. I, I literally called up um, one of the local, like, um, airports and I said, hey, do you have anyone who knows planes? Which is apparently something that's very silly to ask at an airport, but I did. Um, but that was a group of people that hadn't come into the museum ever. And I got them coming in to help me. And then they came in later to actually just look at the exhibitions. So it, it increases your labor pool, it increases general public involvement, and it increases your visitorship. And it's a great opportunity to reach out to stakeholders that you may not have had the chance to reach out to or didn't know were stakeholders in the first place. So I think going from the, including both the, um, you know, the, the not losing the detail and the technical knowledge and then getting the technical knowledge itself, it's, it's a mountain. It is a very tall mountain to climb, but it is so beneficial. Um, you just have to convince the rest of your museum that it is time that's worth spending. Yes, ma'am. Another way to, to handle that, ours is not military, ours is Southeastern Pottery. Uh, we have 3,000 shirts, if any of you would like to come catalog them for me. Um, <laughs> but one of the ways that we've dealt with a very technical stakeholder community is by convincing them that the more general labels are more suitable for our audience by offering them more specialized programming. So we don't necessarily try to meet their needs in the exhibit itself but we have programs and speakers and things that are targeted just to them. And that seems to have worked pretty well. My conscience is telling me I have to go to the next uh, slide, and then we'll come back, I promise, because um, this is the last one. Um, this is controversial because sometimes, again, it's easier just to run away. Um, 
Anyone who's worked with, say, a military collection or a medical collection knows that there's a lot of stuff that can kill you. Anyone who has worked with a social history collection knows that there's a lot of stuff which in large doses can kill you. Anyone who's worked with an art collection, natural history collection, aviation collection, am I losing any? Any collection knows that in large doses anything can kill you. Um, in my experience, it's I've worked with um, uh, explosives in a military museum. Um, uh, one collection I worked with had uh, medical supplies. And then in one collection, we thought we had a lead infestation. Um, lead can't infest things like that. But um, it, it's, it's very problematic. Um, sometimes the, the first gut instinct is just get it out. Um, you know, and then you risk losing a really valuable object. You know, what if you find out that this book was bound and there is arsenic in the binding and you could die because arsenic will kill you? Um, at, you, you know, it's, it could be a... What? Oh, um, uh, what, which examples? Oh, 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 yeah. So yesterday, um, we were talking with a lovely curator from a museum in Colorado. We were telling her about our presentation because we were really excited, and she told us about how um, she had been, she had uh, found live uranium in her collection because there was a uranium mine nearby, and that's just the sort of thing that ends up in your collection. Um, and and this is this is something that you have to be prepared to deal with. Um, you know, do you suddenly get rid of it? Can you keep it around? Like, what do you do? Um, I worked at a museum once where. The curator came up to me and had a box and said, guess what's in this box? And I, of course, said, I don't want to know. Um, but it was glass taken from the Nagasaki blast site. Um, and I thought, well, I don't want to touch that. Um, and so, you know, there are these things that you can come up against. Um, you know, old, old medicine can be very bad for you. It can kill you. Um, and, and so, you know, kind of figuring out how to deal with that um, you know, and conserve, you know, potentially get rid of an object or not get rid of it, um, save an object if you can. So um, this is one plan, and I also should have said, re you know, how to, um, you know, know, know your resources. Um, we created a uh, hazardous materials response plan at one museum that I was at. It is very basic, and basically every single instruction ends with contact the hazardous waste department. Um, which is a very handy thing to do. Um, but the biggest thing that you can do is um, not have to just respond to a problem, but anticipate it. Um, you know, if you have firearms in your collection, if you, have, if you might have, um, you know, ordinances, if you might have things that in any collection that might explode, you know, know who you would call if you find them. Do you call the cops or do you call the sheriff? Or do you call the FBI? Or do you call the ATF? Or do you call the hazardous waste materials? Or do you call your mother? It's just knowing who... Knowing who you would reach out to, also knowing how to identify it. You know, a lot of these chemicals, they 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 might look a certain way when they're hazardous, and another way when they're not. Um, it, it's knowing where you might find a chemical. Um, you know, I I'm careful around old leather because arsenic can kill you. Um, I'm careful around white paint because that can kill you. Yes.
Mm -hmm. so, so that was how they So it's really identifying your risks before they're right in front of you and then figuring out who you'd go to in those circumstances. Um, then you can maybe get away with not getting rid of it. Um, and now we have time for questions. <laughs> yes? Did everyone catch that? I think in your case, it's part of a 
Yeah, it's 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 once something becomes an art, like an artistic object, almost it becomes it's 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 subjected to different standards. Um, you know, there are a lot of of physical methods of display where you can make essentially. Um, uh, you know, every single act of looking at the object is an act of visitor consent, where it's, whether it's like, you know, lifting up a sheet off of a glass, like, paneled case, or it's a book, or it's a pull-out drawer, and you can say, you know, objects within this, you know, here are restricted to this age. Um, but as far as whether or not, you know, you display an ob you know, a, a, an image depicting a sex act, um, once it once it becomes an artistic representation, that, that changes the, the, I guess, the interpretation of it. At least in my experience, and if anyone disagrees with me, I am okay with that. I think there's another cultural institution, might be fairly far away, but if there's an art, major art museum not too far away, you could ask them that question. Yeah, you're, you're going to find, as someone who's just started as an art museum, you're going to find that that's a great resource to go to as far as different ways of, of representing that. And going back to your um, focus groups, one thing I did want to add is that you have um, stakeholder focus groups and then general public stakeholder focus groups. So you can go, you, you, you could go to like, you know, you could literally go up to someone on the street that you've never met before and say, hey, you want to be in a focus group? We have treats. Um, in, in the interest of full disclosure, it is 12 after 2. I don't think there's anything else in this room, so if people wanted to stay and chat, we could totally do that. Um, we're going to be here for a little while longer if anyone wants to ask us questions, but you are all super knowledgeable, <laughs> and if you have any questions to ask each other, or if you want to engage in more discussion, like we're really cool with that. And it's two after twelve. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, did I? S I'm sorry. <laughs> My conscience, ladies and gentlemen.